theme this morning is growing through the gospel, and uh, we're going to be using Ephesians 1 and 2 as the summary of the gospel which drives us forward in the Christian life. The story is told of a young girl who had accepted uh, Jesus Christ as her saviour, and she was applying for membership in the local church, and she was interviewed by the elders in the church. And one uh, old elder asked her, were you a sinner before you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour? And she said, yes, I was indeed. Uh, Well, he went on, are you still a sinner? Uh, To tell you the truth, she replied, I feel I'm a greater sinner than ever. Then the man went on, what real change have you experienced? And the girl replied, I don't know how to describe it, but the way I would put it is this. Before I received Jesus as my saviour, I was running towards sin. Now that I've trusted in Jesus, I'm running away from sin. And the elders wisely saw that this was a description of the real Christian life. Uh, We're not uh, suddenly uh, prevented from sinning, but we have a new relationship with it. We run away from it rather than run towards it. This morning we're (coughs) looking at the question of what it is to grow as Christians. And we call this sanctification. And this is something that takes place throughout the Christian life. When we're justified, when we become Christians, it's a a once and for all uh, act of the moment. We trust Christ and we're placed uh, in the the register, as it were, of Christ's people. But sanctification, growing as a Christian, is a lifelong process of change through the Holy Spirit, making us more and more in the family likeness. So, morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the goal. What is the goal of growing as Christians? Then we're going to consider that there's some uh, pitfalls. Sometimes we have the wrong motivation for doing the right things. And then we're going to look at what the right motivation is. And what should drive us in becoming more like Jesus is the gospel. We're going to see how that works this morning. Well, first of all, our goal is to become more like our Father, because we are the children of God if we are Christ's. You know, when when a baby is born, uh, it's a great thing uh, by all the family to try and identify who the child is like. This poor child knows nothing about what's going on and everything. Ah, isn't he like his mother? You know, he's got his mother's eyes, mother's lips and so on, or he's like his uh, uncle or whatever. And it's a wonderful thing, and it's quite a nice thing uh, to to know that there are family traits, there are features that run in families. And God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the family likeness. When God made Adam, he was said to have been made in the image of God. So there was a, a resemblance, a spiritual resemblance. Obviously, God is a spirit, so it wasn't a physical thing, but Adam, spiritually, uh, would remind you of God. 
a wonderful thing. And then sin came into the world, when Adam disobeyed, and the image was defaced, it was spoiled, but it wasn't lost. People still reflect God, but sin has spoiled it. And we can say that the, the purpose of the gospel is to restore in us the likeness to God the Father. Now, that's why when Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus, Luke chapter 3, he traces the genealogy back to Adam, the son of God. And it's as though Luke's saying to us, this is why he's come. He's come as a second Adam to restore the likeness, the family likeness. He's come to restore the image that was lost, defaced by sin. Now that's why we need to be wary of people who speak in a loose way of God's unconditional acceptance. They could well be using it in a right way, which is to say that God accepts us without us making any change in our lives. He'll accept us and forgive us. But if they mean that God is ready to leave us where we are and is content that we don't change, then that's a big mistake because God loves you too much to leave you as you are. God has brought us into his family in order to bring about change in our lives. We are saved to reflect God's glory. Think about that. Some people think that the purpose of being saved is just to have a ticket for heaven. You know, we're saved, ah, I'm there. And go on living as I was living before, and the gospel of being a Christian is simply a fallback position. I'll be all right because I said yes to Jesus. Not so. Uh, we are saved to reflect God's glory. And Paul, uh, when he's speaking in that very famous verse, Romans 8, 28, uh, he says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So God has chosen us, predestined us, to be conformed to the image of his Son. So our purpose is to make us more like Jesus. That's why we've been saved. God's building his family. He wants us to be more like Jesus. That's the result, the, the destination. That's the object of our salvation. God's in the business of changing us so that we're more like Jesus. So that Jesus will be the preeminent, the head, the best, the greatest of this family of people who are like him. In an earthly family, uh, it's an interesting thing that if you have uh, an adopted child in a family, along with some uh, natural children, over time, the adopted child begins to pick up on some of the, the mannerisms and the, the habits and the outlooks uh, of the family. He sees it in the father, the mother, the other siblings. So that, although the 
the cloud doesn't have the same DNA, the genetic DNA. More and more, the gap between them and the natural children is reduced. And by God's grace, that's what happens with us. As adopted children, we become more and more like the true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's design for us. And Jesus' relationship with his father was characterized by trusting obedience. He always did what pleased his father. <clears throat> when Jesus taught his disciples to use the word Abba, Father, uh, the word is drawn from a world in which the, the sons stayed under the, the family roof for all their lives. Can you imagine that? Now, sometimes it still happens that day, but... Uh, it did happen all the way through, and they remained under the protection and the guidance of their father all through their lives. Uh, you see that with the way that Jacob relates to his twelve sons uh, in the Old Testament. And so, uh, Jesus is the son who obeys, who is in a trusting, obedient relationship with the father. And in the parable of the prodigal son, the scandal of the, the younger brother uh, going away from home, the man who's inheritance, is that he's breaking this rule, with, uh, this rule that his father properly has over him. As we grow as Christians, we'll show more of the trusting obedience that Jesus showed in relation to his father. Now, there are some pitfalls, uh, there are some wrong motives uh, in doing right things, in obeying God. We keep referring back to the parable of the two sons because it's such an importance, a key uh, for understanding the gospel. And it tells us that there are two ways of avoiding knowing God as your father. You can either rebel openly as the younger son did, who couldn't put enough miles between himself and his father, or you can relate to God as the elder brother did, as a slave trying to earn his acceptance. And both of these are ways of missing out on the salvation of God. Now, obviously, the gospel is needed for both kinds of, of sinners. Uh, the person who has been bold as brass in saying no to God and uh, practices a lifestyle which is obviously not Christian, that person needs to know that the grace of God is such that no matter how bad we be, no matter how everybody thinks uh, poorly of us, if we will humble ourselves and come to God, he is good and faithful, and because of what Jesus has done, he will forgive us. But equally, if we're like the elder brother, and if we've been trying to be decent all our lives, and we've gone to church, and we've given to charity, and we've been a nice person, we need to know that that's not enough. We can never be good enough for God. God's standard is 100%. And if we again will humble ourselves and admit that we've broken his commandments in our hearts, he will forgive us and give us a proper righteousness to save us. 
that deeply ingrained idea that I obey, therefore I'm accepted, has to be destroyed, has to be blown out of the water by the gospel. Now, when we first become Christians, it's like falling in love for the first time. You think back. Those of you who are Christians this morning, think back to your uh, the, the, the days uh, during which you trusted the Lord. If, if for you it, it was a kind of decisive, you know, point the day kind of experience, it's not for everybody. But if it was, it was like being in love. You wanted to do all that you could for God the Father. Because you were so grateful. His love simply was washing over you and you were trying to respond in whatever way you could. But the thing is that uh, as we go on as Christians, we tend to drift away from that familial, uh, love-driven motivation and we can lapse into other sub-Christian motivations for doing good. And we can start acting like the elder brother all over again. That's a tendency in Christians over a time to become elder brother-like or elder sister-like in our attitudes. We think we have to earn uh, God's acceptance and that our, our doing things, our keeping rules and, and so on is actually uh, the way that God wants us uh, to go. And our thinking is like this. We, we, we tend to think that the gospel is for getting people into the kingdom. We preach the gospel so people will be converted. But then after that, it's all about rules and disciplines and motivations which are non-gospel. Some brands of the church promote spiritual experiences that will give you instant sanctification. Let go, let God do it all. Others have got spiritual disciplines, uh, retreats, meditation, and so on. And all of that sells the gospel badly short. The gospel is not simply the way in. The gospel is the way on. The gospel is the way by which you will grow in trusting obedience to God, not through any other motivation. Take, for example, take the, the example of worldliness. Worldliness is the, the pool of the culture around us to make us less Christ-like, to make us conform to its non-Christian lifestyle, to make us less distinctive. So what happens? How do, how do we often respond to that? Well, we make up rules. It's amazing how, how fertile our minds are for making up man-made rules. You shall not let your children read Harry Potter because Harry Potter is worldly. You shall not play football. Amazingly, uh, that is uh, an outlook in some places. You shall not go to the cinema. You shall not get involved in politics. So on and so on. And all of this is basically Pharisaic. It's the multiplication of man-made rules to keep the Christians safe without addressing the need for our heart to be melted by the gospel. You've got a piece of plastic and you want to change the, the, the direction of the, the, of the, the plastic. You want to you know, change its shape. You simply bend it, apply force. Well, one of two things will happen. It will either simply spring back to where it was or it will snap. And what you need to do is you need to melt it. 
Acquire gentle speech so that it will bend and stay in its new position. That's what the gospel does to our hearts. The gospel melts our hearts to achieve lasting change in the direction of our lives. So John in his first epistle, uh, we looked at this text uh, some time back. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Turn that round. Uh, if anyone loves the Father, the love of the world is not in him. Love for the Father drives out love for the world. Chalmers preached on this text and called it the expulsive power of a new affection. If you love the Father, then that will be the effective expeller of love of the world, of worldliness. Other wrong motives can be fear or pride or self-interest. Uh, lying. If you lie, you'll get into trouble with God and with other people. If you lie, you'll end up like being one of these people who are habitually lying, and you're better than that. Appeal to pride. Appeal uh, to fear. Another inadequate motivation is the desire for personal gain. Don't lie, because honesty is the best policy. Honest people get on in life. Uh, we have our own ways of enculturating these things. You know, in the west of Scotland, uh, we paraphrase it in different ways. Good Protestants get on in the world because they're honest. Okay? These are sub-Christian motivations. It's an appeal to self-interest and pride at the same time. And the problem is that every motivation like that will fail to address your deep problem and my deep problem, which is the, the turning in of ourselves on ourselves. We are inherently self-centered people. And that is the essence of sin, that we please self rather than God. And if you feed that uh, using fear and pride and self-interest, then you may have outward uh, conformity to, to good living, but the heart remains untouched. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, famous missionary, uh, her husband Jim Elliot was martyred uh, uh, in South America and uh, she went back there to the place where her husband and his, his comrades had been uh, killed and she, she later went on to write a lot of books. She tells a, a, an interesting parable in her book These Strange Ashes. Uh, now, this is, although it refers to, to the Lord Jesus, this is a, an apocryphal, a non-Bible story. It did not happen, so make that <laughs> understood from the outset. Uh, the, the, the parable, the story goes, uh, one day Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. Uh, he didn't give any explanation, and so the disciples went looking for stones. Peter, being a smart kind of guy, uh, looked for the smallest pebble he could find and put it in his pocket. And then Jesus said, follow me. Then about noon, he had everyone sit down and Jesus waved his hand and the stones turned to bread and said, now it's time for lunch. And after they had finished, he said again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. This time Peter is thinking and he says to himself, I've got it now, I've got it. And he looked around 
uh, and he found a small boulder and he picked up this small boulder and he staggered under the weight of the boulder. He can hardly uh, walk with this enormous boulder on his back. Jesus said, follow me. Peter's struggling, but he's thinking, oh, I can't wait until tea time. Around supper time, Jesus led them to the side of the river. He said, now everyone throw your stones into the water. And they did. And he said, follow me. And they began to walk. Peter and the others looked around at each other, dumbfounded. Jesus sighed and said, don't you remember when I asked what I asked you to do? Who were you carrying a stone for? Who were you carrying a stone for? Peter was carrying a stone for himself, wasn't he? And the point of that fictitious parable is that sometimes what we do for God is actually doing something for ourselves. It's a wrong motive. It's not a gospel motive. And when the outcome is not what we anticipated, we become confused and angry, as Peter was. There has to be better motive. And there is a better motive, and that better motive is the gospel. The gospel is the better motive. And we've got a great gospel outline in Ephesians 1 and 2. And in this wonderful sermon, uh, Paul tells us, first of all, what we have become. Uh, in that wonderful uh, first chapter, a large part of which is one sentence, uh, Paul is telling us that by God's grace we have become adopted children. He has chosen us to adopted sonship. Uh, this is what we have become. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. And there's no higher privilege there than to be a child of God. This is the, the very apex of <coughs> our privilege in salvation. God brings us into his family and he calls us his children and he makes Jesus our elder brother and he makes us heirs of a great inheritance. This is what the gospel has done for us. And there are two verbs, chose and predestined, which underline the fact that God has had in view in the past this great uh, outcome. He determined to make us his own children. He didn't exist at the time through the redeeming work of Christ, which hadn't taken place at the time. And this act of choosing us as children was not just an act of his will, it was an act of pleasure. Something that brought joy <coughs> to the heart of the Father. It was in accordance with his pleasure, verse 5. It pleased the Father to enfold us in his loving embrace. Imagine that to incorporate us along with Jesus, the true divine Son, in the family of God. It brings to mind the, the, the story of the, of the little boy who was adopted, uh, and who was teased when his classmates discovered that uh, he was an adopted child. And his father, uh, concerned about this, uh, the end of oh, the day asked him, what do you say to those kids that tease you because you're adopted. And the child said, I tell them, your mum and dad couldn't help have you as their child. But my mum and dad 
they've chosen. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. The privilege that we have, what we have become. But what we were before, the second thing, uh, Paul tells us that before we had this immense privilege, uh, we were part of a very different family. We were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Unfortunately, the NIV masks that, but that's the literal rendering of what you have in, in your Bible. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is, of course, Satan, has his own personal offspring to serve him, the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath. And while we were in the family, we were characterized as being dead in our transgressions and sins. There was no spiritual life in us, no spark. And yet we were active, we uh, were, were active in uh, conforming to the, the trends of the secular society around us, the world. As well as going the way of our inclinations and the sinful nature within us. We were truly sons of disobedience. The family likeness could be seen in us, but it wasn't the likeness of God the Father, it was a likeness of the evil one. It was a likeness of ugliness, meanness, pettiness, unkindness, self-centeredness. And as a result, we were heading for the judgment. We were children of wrath. We were destined one day to stand before God and be condemned. But God worked a change. God has done a great thing. Uh, he has changed our status. And that not by our own efforts, moved only by his love for us, God in grace has lifted us up out of our deadness and placed us into Christ and made us alive in Christ. And his kindness to us, uh, his grace towards us, was in the giving of Jesus, his son, to die on the cross, to bear the penalty of our sins so that we might be forgiven to give us his goodness by the life that he lived, which was free from sin. And we didn't earn it at all. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith simply connects us with what God has done. God gifts us. So none of us can boast, because it's all been received. And this gospel results in changed lives. Uh, Paul said that we were chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. That was in the first chapter. Here we are God's workmanship, uh, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're saved not to drift, we're saved to do good works. God has them prepared in advance for us to do. That is the motivator. And that's why, after he spelt the gospel, he now turns and addresses the Ephesians, remember who are mainly Gentiles, and he said, remember, remember. He just mentioned that the fact we're called to good works, he says, therefore remember. Remember that you were once far away, you were not family. Remember you were separate, you were aliens, you were strangers, but now you've been brought near. Bring this to mind. 
work out its implications because that will motivate you to the good deeds that God has prepared in advance for you. This is the motivation. This is the gospel preached to ourselves, worked out in our lives. As we grow in our understanding of the gospel, we'll change. And two things are going to happen. First of all, we'll have a deeper realization of our sin and a growing appreciation of God's grace. First congregation I was called to was in Barris in the Isle of Lewis. And the island had experienced powerful revival, a number of revivals. And uh, in the congregation, there were quite a number of people who had been converted in the 1949 revival, but there was also one or two uh, older ladies who had been in the 1939 revival as well. And as I got to know the people better, I began to understand the impact that revival had made, the impress it had left on their lives, what the revival had been. And the revival had been a rediscovery of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it resulted in people who had a far more serious view of their sin. And at the same time, a more joyful appreciation of God's grace. More serious view of their sin and a more joyful appreciation of God's grace. And their, their attitude and their lifestyle was miles removed from some of the triumphalism that passes as revival today. We need to know that kind of personal revival through the gospel in our lives. This is the way to undermine the fortress of self that remains untouched by other motivators. This is what Tim Keller writes. He says, the gospel destroys both the pride and the fearfulness that fuel moralistic behavior change. The gospel destroys pride because it tells us we are so lost that Jesus had to die for us. And it also destroys fearfulness because it tells us that nothing we do will exhaust his love for us. The gospel is the motivator. For example, when Paul is wanting to encourage generosity, okay, uh, there's a situation, there's a famine uh, in Judea, in Israel, and Christians are suffering. Paul wants the, the Christians in Corinth to be generous. How does Paul motivate generosity? Does he manipulate them with guilt? Does he say to them, uh, how can you guys go on uh, enjoying the kind of lifestyle you have uh, in Corinth and Thessalonica when there are people in Judea and they're really, really struggling? Uh, does he motivate them by pride? Go on in. Just give big, really deep. Show what you're made of. Show that you're uh, the generous arm of the church in uh, Achaia. No, he doesn't use guilt, doesn't use pride as his motivator. He uses the gospel. He reminds them of Christ Jesus. 
who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. The gospel is the motivator. So, the gospel will, as we preach it to ourselves, as we hear it preached, as we discuss it, it will result in a greater appreciation of our sinfulness and a more joyful acceptance of God's grace. It will also encourage us to bring our conduct in line with our new identity in Christ. Preaching the gospel isn't just reminding ourselves about justification. It's reminding ourselves that uh, we are children of God, heirs with Christ, members of God's family. And that motivator is seen powerfully in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We have been brought into God's family through union with Christ. And when we remind ourselves of that, we remind ourselves that it's our lifestyle that's befitting our new identity. Remember when Joseph uh, is taken down to Egypt and he enters the service of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. And when he's uh, there, Mrs. Potiphar takes a liking to him and, and tries to seduce him. And he, at one point, has got him cornered. And Joseph's response is to remind her and to remind himself of his privilege within the family. Potiphar has placed him uh, in command, uh, and there's nothing that is out with his authority apart from Potiphar's wife. And we remind ourselves of our privilege as children of God uh, to live in accordance with Instead of Abraham Lincoln, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who uh, is regarded as one of the, the greatest of the American presidents, he was beset by depression, actually, and, and self-doubt. And, of course, he had his critics, and he, he, he was uh, leader of, of the, the, the North when uh, the country was going through a tremendous amount of, of uh, loss of life. And he used to carry around in his jacket pocket uh, newspaper patterns, uh, which essentially says Abraham Lincoln is a good man. And when he would uh, uh, have these periods of self-doubt, he would uh, reflect on these newspaper cuttings. Well, we've no need to uh, say to ourselves that we are good people. Paradoxically, we look away from ourselves and to Jesus. And we remind ourselves that our identity is in him. We are children of God because we've been placed into Christ. And therefore, we don't need to respond angrily and with pride when people are nasty to us or criticize us because we know that our greatest treasure is unassailable. And we're not motivated by a desire for gain or self-interest. We're motivated by the love of God in Christ for us. We want to please our Father. A preacher of Keswick uh, shared an anecdote uh, about his own youth. And he said that when, uh, when he was with some of his pals, when he was a, a, a young Christian, uh, his pals were teasing him. They were uh, accusing him of not joining in with them because he was afraid of what his father would do. And he said, I'm not afraid of what my father would do to me if I joined with you. 
I'm afraid of what they do to my father. See the world of difference? One's a motivator of fear, the other's a motivator of love. I don't want to disappoint my father. I don't want to let him down. I don't want to grieve his spirit. How practically, friends, do we do this? How do we work this into our, our life as a family together? We've got a number of ways, haven't we, of, of doing this, of affecting this. Obviously, in, our, in your daily devotions, when you're digging into the Word, morning by morning, remind yourself of this precious truth that you are a child of God. Preach the Gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the privilege of adopted sonship. This is what I once was, away from God, stranger to God, without hope and without God in the world. This is what I've become by the grace of God. Uh, in our in our scriptures, in our community groups, let's work at making them function more experientially as we share with one another our love of the Father, our discoveries in His Word of His goodness. Let's aim at a greater openness to share if we are becoming more conscious of sin and more thrilled by grace and so encourage one another. And then, and really straightforward, in our conversations, in our everyday conversations, let's be more intentional, gospel intentional. How easy it is to fritter away the time uh, and talk about everything under the sun, but things that are important. Of course there is a need to talk about the, the ordinary things that connect our lives. Let's aspire higher to talk about our Heavenly Father, our love for Him, and to encourage one another to be motivated by the Gospel, to take delight in the fact God has predestined us to have us adopted as His sons and daughters. Amen. May God bless to us the teaching of His Holy Word. Now we're going to sing our last one. It's not the one printed, although we could uh, easily sing this as well. But we're going to sing uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. <coughs> How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory.
And may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen.